te toto o te tangata he kai, te oranga o te tangata he whenua. Food is the source of man's bodily strength, but the land is the source of his spiritual well-being. Enga iwi o te motu, tēnei te mihi ki a tātou katoa, nau mai ki tēnei hōtaka a te ahikā. Ko Justin Murray ahau. Ko Maraia Rakuraku ahau, nau mai hoki mai anō, I'm Maraia Rakuraku, and you're with Te Ahikā, the Kaupapa Māori program on Radio New Zealand National. Ko ahinga te tōtara o te waunui a tāne. Another tōtara has fallen. Or in this case, another two tōtara have fallen. We pay homage to two men who died earlier this week whose contribution to their respective iwi and through their iwi to te ao Māori and te ao Pākehā and to us has shaped our nation. Stay tuned. Ko maraia rakaku And I'm Justin Murray and this is Te Ahikā. Anyone who's had any dealings over the years with the southern Taranaki settlement of Parihaka will be familiar with the lean, usually gum-booted, always up-for-conversation figure of Te Meringa Hōhaia. Over the years I've had a couple myself. I first met Te Meringa when he came to Roatoki for a few days and was filmed in the video. System Virtue by Emma Paki, that's a pretty cool way out there actually, mm. and the vid is one of those black and white numbers. So, I mean, it's pretty great, actually, especially because it was one of the first like mm. that at the time, eh? which was around the early 1990s. It shows communities in the Eastern Bar Plenty and some of the characters and personalities of that time that you never saw on our television screens, or if you did, they were only doing something negative. In this video, they're shown in their environment, just being themselves. And that's one thing Temeringa certainly was, as this recording from the 1990s illustrates. The presenter is Hardy Williams. And welcome again to another edition of Hereringa Kōrero. I'm Hardy Williams. The first, block of land, the first big block that was taken was taken in 1880 as part of the preparation for the invasion of Parihaka. When we go on our hikai, I'll show it to you. It covers an area of about four square miles, just down over here, taken in 1880 for military settlement. And at the same time, they also cut off the south end of the reserve and the north end of the, of the reserve for military settlement so that they could box Parihaka in to a military settlement. The other thing was this, is that in 1881, when they invaded Parihaka, and they built a fort up on that hill over there, which we call Te Pūrepo, where they put their cannons and they built a fort, they occupied that fort. Parihaka was under military occupation for five years. There were 79 soldiers and five officers here. So it wasn't just to go in and, you know, burn the place down and then go home. It wasn't just a matter of going in, raping a few women and killing all the stock and destroying the gardens. They stayed here for five years and continued to rape the women and continued to burn the gardens. The 1860s and the 1880s was not a good time for the Taranaki and Waikato people. The scorched earth policies of the government in that period was intent on destroying everything that belonged to the people, including their very existence. And so Te Fiti Orungumai of Taranaki set out to embarrass the government through passive resistance. Some 800 guests were packed into Parihaka for the annual hui of Ngā Punawaihanga 
and there they heard a passionate Milton Hohaia tell them of the events in which Taranaki lost much of their cherished lands, their Tūranga Waiwai at Parihaka over a century ago. After the Taranaki people had taken a, a pounding from the heavy art artillery from the gunships, they sent down troops with a scorched earth policy to destroy everything they possibly could. And they did. The only places they didn't go to were where they knew the Taranaki people were waiting for them. They avoided coming into contact with the Taranaki people in terms of um, fighting. But what they did was they attacked defenseless people and they destroyed our economic base. So in the period from 1865 until for about the next 14 years, from 1865 to 1879, the emphasis for the Taranaki people was on keeping ourselves together, and of course Parihaka was, pro was providing that. So Parihaka grew from a small community to being a huge community and a movement that went outside of Taranaki to many, many tribes because other tribes were being affected in a similar way. And they were sending delegations of people here to live here. They were sending delegations of people to come here and attend the meetings and to hold discussions and to look for ways of strengthening our people and retaining what we had. So, so from 1865 to 1879, that's what the people did. And they continued with a series of negotiations with the government to try and have the reserves created. But the reserves weren't created. And the people were being forced out of their areas and to come here, they had to come here, nowhere else to go. The great leader, Titokowaru, was drawn into the fighting when he had had enough of the imperial intrusions of the settler government and the destitution of his people. Titokowaru was feared. He put terror into all the settlers. Titokowaru was initially opposed to fighting. After all, he was a man of peace and a man of God. But enough was enough. Titokowaru was also a man committed to pacifism. He also had been initiated into that kaupapa by Tuahomi. And along with Tuiti and Tohu, he was a very, very important man as well. A very important leader. He was regarded as a visionary person in his own right in the same way that they were. And he was from Ngāruahini, which is on our southern boundary here, the Ngāruahini people. He was from them. And they all worked closely together. During the 1870s, <coughs> Titokowaru began to realise that the reserves were not going to be created and his people were going to starve. Because what was happening was, as the surveyors came up from south, they would destroy the Māori communities. Survey lines and fences and so on would be just built right through communities and the people would be just put, turned out of their land. So people were hungry, because how do you feed your children and your old people when that, th that is happening to you? Tito Gawaru knew that his people were actually going to physically starve. 
to death. So he began a campaign, a very good one too, to bring the Taranaki people together and keep them united. And he made a big hikoi around Taranaki to do it. There were others in Taranaki who wanted to go to war again. And Titukawaru stopped them from doing it until he realized that his people were actually going to starve. And then he started a campaign himself, got together a very, very small army, in the same way that Fidel Castro did in Cuba, a very small army. And he started the war in 18... Um, sorry, I've got the wrong year here. 1869. He started his war, he got ready for it in 1868. They'd had enough. And he went to war, and he fought a war that showed all the great military minds that were here in this country, I mean the Park Air military establishment, that they were dealing with somebody that knew more about it than what they did. And he thrashed them, and he made Taranaki proud. And they were terrified of him. He revived certain old customs in order to terrorize his enemies. Titukawaru drove his enemies right out of the area. What was once a wealthy farming region was feared by settlers and government. There were huge estates along the Taranaki Strip. Even the government didn't know what to do. The people had to constantly move, for they were constantly on a path of war. We're constantly moving through the bush from place to place, rebuilding in order to defend themselves. When that had been happening to them for two years, you can imagine the amount of stress that there would be in a community that that was happening to. You can imagine the amount of pain at seeing people die, at seeing children massacred, and all the difficulties that go along with feeding large numbers of people when you're living in secrecy and you're moving through the bush in large numbers like that. They had a lot of stress. So at a place called Taurangaika in, in Ngaroru, at a place called Taurangaika, within a few hours on the verge of another victory and probably their final victory, Titukawaru's army disbanded. And Titukawaru, they all came away. Titukawaru went into hiding in the back of Taranaki here in the area we call Ngati Maru. Went in there, the government didn't want to chase him because it's too dangerous up there. So they decided to let sleeping dogs lie and they left them there. And they concentrated their efforts on Parihaka. How to deal with the troublesome people at Parihaka. Which had meanwhile continuing and continuing to grow. Titukawaru, after hiding out for a while, he decided he wasn't going to have that life. He went back to Naruahine, back to the very lands that he belonged to and just set up camp again and started living there as if nothing had happened. And the government were pleased to treat it as if nothing had happened because they were terrified of that man. And Tito Owaru rejoined the Parihaka movement again. He embraced the Parihaka teachings again and came back to Parihaka. And when that happened, the mana of Te and Tohu was dramatically increased because Tito Owaru was a great leader and a visionary in his own right. Their money was greatly increased. And the government knew it 
and they got very worried. So the reserves weren't created. And then in 1879, that was when Tuiti decided to actually launch intensive campaigns of resistance. That was when the ploughing started, the ploughing campaign started. Hundreds and hundreds of people arrested and taken away to prisons. And then they started a fencing campaign. And they just fenced all the roads off. They ploughed up all the roads. They ploughed up all the Pākehā farmers' farms. They ploughed up all their crops. They burned down all their hay barns. But they never hurt anybody, except their feelings, maybe. And so that, that you know, so they, they did those two campaigns and blockades and so on. And that was why eventually in 1881 the government sent the army in here to destroy the place. <coughs> to destroy the place. That was when they arrested all the people, took them all away to Tintoru into, into New Plymouth here and Titokawaru into New Plymouth there, and they held them there. They were never ever put to trial, but some of them spent 18 years in Otago. And they built all the stone walls in Otago. They built the stone walls that make up the Otago waterfront, all, in the, in the, all along the harbour in, in Otago. They built all those walls. They built the causeway out across to the... the across the, the water, across to the Otago Peninsula, and they built roads and so on. And some of them never came back here for 18 years. They were down there without trial. And of course a lot of them died down there under those harsh conditions. Um, Tuti and Tohu were held for three years. When they came back to Parihaka, they were arrested again several times after that for continuing with their protesting and their outspokenness, and their criticism, and their strategies. They were arrested several times later. And they were charged with things like um, bankruptcy, and so on. <laughs> when Pariaka was, was destroyed in 1881, where we are here, we're about four and a half miles inland from the sea, in a direct line. We're about four and a half miles inland. And all the area, between here and the sea was in cultivation, the whole of it, except for the hills. When the people used to come here, they used to come through a coastal route and then walk up, <coughs> walk up from, and it was not just, it wasn't described as acres of gardens, it was described as miles. So that's the amount, that's, that gives you some idea of the amount of wealth in terms of using their hands and looking after the, the earth that was happening here. <coughs> when Tuti and Tohu got back here, of course the whole place had been destroyed, but the people that were here had started to rebuild again. <coughs> While Te Pitiorongomai was in prison in Mount Crawford for the ploughing on Hastie's farm in, down near Hawera, they went out ploughing again and they did protests every month to coincide with the 18th. They went out to plough and pull down fences and, and hassle, have some cordial to some, some uh, 
have some cordial to some of these land occupiers and so on. When they went down to Hastie's farm and plough, they were all arrested again. Tefiti was sent down to uh, Mount Crawford. While he was there, he was visited by a man called Charlie Waitara, who was a Teatiawa person of high um, standing. And he was very well educated, this man, Tare Waitara. And he was a master builder, among other things. And because of his education and everything, he had a lot of dealings in land. And he managed to retain his, a lot of his own hapu land. And he was managing it very well, and he had a massive income. He, the government used him as a way of cutting their costs in terms of keeping Tutintuhu and others inside. The government used Charlie Waitara by saying to him, well, you come and get them, you take them out of prison, you know, you buy them their clothes, you provide them with their food, we'll just detain them. And so Charlie Waitara started a long relationship by providing Tuti, it was Tuti on his own and, uh, and others, providing them with their clothing, their food, and with outings away from the prison. And so when, to, when they released uh, Tuiti from prison, Tare Waitara came back here with him and later on married his daughter. And he brought with him his building skills in Tepeyaka and he employed skilled people to come here and live and to teach the people here. To teach the people here. And so they brought in the best of what they could find. They brought in people, they brought in plumbers, they brought in carpenters, they brought in stonemasons, you know, they brought in blacksmiths, they brought them all in here. And they taught the people here all those skills. And they brought in the they brought in caterers. And they taught all those skills. And they began to rebuild Pariaka using what they regarded as being appropriate for them in terms of Parker technology and keeping, the, keeping our own. So during those years, Pariaka became the famous place that it was known for in terms of the services that were here, the cleanliness, the, the, the running water, the electricity, the gas lighting, the beautiful buildings. But all the big houses that were built here at the time were built for the people. Like, for instance, Terokura, you can see the end of Terokura over in that photo there. Terokura is often, is often called Tepiti Rongomai's house. It wasn't, it was the people's house. It was the people's house. It was a series of large dining rooms, Parirunanga, and quarters at which visiting rangatira could be, could be um, hosted with their families. That's the big veranda building that you can see over there. That's just the end of it. That photo there was taken on the day of Tuti Oromomai's tangi. And that's why that tent is there. What year? Yes. 1907. The 1907? Yeah, 1907. That was when Tuti died. 1907. And that's, that photo was taken on the day of his tangi. And this building here, Miti Mai Te Arero, that building is where the Tikitohu is up there, the monument to Tikitohu. And that's where, the, that's where his tent is standing there is Parimati. On the day he died, they pulled this house down. They pulled this house down. Miti Mai Te Arero was the first European-style house that was built here. And it, again, it's, it's not a home. It's, it's a, it's a, a Parinui. It's a Parinui. It's a Parirunanga for the people. Miti Mai Te Arero. Yeah. So they pulled it down on the day of uh, 
Tutti's tongue in, then they buried him there. And so that's how Pariaka became known as the community where, you know, um, pro it was progressive. It was progressive. But bad things were happening. Because meanwhile, in 1883, as I said earlier, the West Coast Commission and the West Coast Settlement Reserves had been created. Now, the people from Pariaka did not go there, as I said. But Hone Pihama, who was a chief at Oyo in South Taranaki here, and other people, they felt pody for the Taranaki people who were here at Pariaka and who were refusing to have anything to do with the Māori, the Native Land Court, and the West Coast Commission, and so on. And so they put forward the names of Te Whiti and Tohu and several hundred other people so that the Pariaka Reserves could be created. And so those reserves were created. And the people here became the owners in the Pākehā sense. In the Pākehā legal sense, our people became the owners of those reserves. And along with all the other reserves in Taranaki, those reserves were uplifted on the day they were created and they were put into the hands of the public trustee. And the public trustee began to lease them out to settlers. And then in 1892, the government gave the public trustee more powers and the public trustee could lease those lands in perpetuity. The public trustee could sell those lands without consoling the owners. He could lease them without selling the owners and he re could retain any of the rent money that he got from it for his own purposes. That is, for purposes of administration and so on. Those leases, said Milton Hohaya, are still binding on the Taranaki people today. So what happened? The Parihaka block was the last that the government was able to alienate. Within the legislation that was created for the public trustee, it said that the public trustee would hold the reserves in fee simple in trust for the natives. Hmm. By 1900, most of all the other reserves in Taranaki had all been put out on lease or else sold. <coughs> but there had been not one land sale, there hadn't been one land sale within the Parihaka block. So then in 1970, he died. But from about 1900 to about 1907, <coughs> Some quite large areas of the Pariaka Reserve were taken. In fact, the first lot of land, the first big block that was taken, was taken in 1880 as part of the preparation for the invasion of Pariaka. When we go on our hikai, I'll show it to you. It covers an area of about four square miles, just down over here, taken in 1880 for military settlement. And at the same time, they also cut off the south end of the reserve and the north end of the, of the reserve for military settlement so that they could box Parihaka in to a military settlement. The other thing was this, is that in 1881, when they invaded Parihaka, and they built a fort up on that hill over there, which we call Te Pūrepo, where they put their cannons and they built a fort, they occupied that fort. Parihaka was under military occupation for five years. There were 79 soldiers and five officers here. 
So it wasn't just to go in and, you know, burn the place down and then go home. It wasn't just a matter of going in, raping a few women and killing all the stock and destroying the gardens. They stayed here for five years and continued to rape the women and continued to burn the gardens. So after Tuatutuhu died, as part of our research and stuff, we've dug up some interesting stuff. Because the Minister of Native Affairs <coughs> wrote to the public trustee and said this, that now that the troublemakers at Pariaka have died, it would be an opportune time to alienate the Pariaka block. So in 1915, the Native Land Court was sent here to Pungarehu to hold a series of meetings. And at those meetings, the Pariaka elders said to the Land Court, we have appointed a leader at Pariaka. Now this man's name was Te Poi Orepodi. He was only a young man at the time. But the people here had appointed him as the leader here. And they said to the, land, they said to the Native Land Court, this man is our leader. The Native Land Court ignored him because they knew that there were other problems in Pariaka because of all the people that were living here, there were problems. So they played on those problems instead and they offered the people a chance to own their own piece of land. And they said to the people, we'll cut your piece of the block out for you and you can have it, the Pariaka block. And the people said, no, leave the Pariaka block out of this. You've tampered with everything else. Now leave this alone. Now, what I want to put to you is this. At the time, the Pariaka block, which, which was still 10,000 acres at this point, when Tutiantuhu died, the land that they owned and that the people owned was 10,000 acres here. Now, if the government had one bit of sincerity in terms of giving the Taranaki people something and allowing the independent spirit that the Taranaki people had to keep its place within the Taranaki community, they would have left the, the, the Pariaka block alone because it was the last block in Taranaki that had not been alienated. It was the only block. So this is 1915. <coughs> so then they said to the people, look, we'll cut out pieces for each family. Now, none of the Taranaki people accepted it. So they held another meeting, and at that meeting, I mean the Native Land Court, they took off the titles, the title for the reserve, they took off the names of Te Piti Orongamai and Tohukakahi and 64 other people, and they described them as being undesirable troublemakers. And they replaced those 66 people or so with others who did not come from the area, <coughs> Then they offered those people a chance to own their own piece of land on the Pariaka block and those people was, began to accept. And as the <coughs> couple of years went by from, 18, from 1917 to 1919, our families began to go to the Native Land Court to try and have a piece of land set aside for them as a farm. <coughs> what they didn't realise was that in order to occupy their farm, <coughs> they had to pay an occupation license and the occupation license was three times higher than what a Pākehā could get on a West Coast lease. In other words, on the same reserve, 
on the same reserve a Parker settler could lease a block for one and six an acre and our people to occupy their, what was going to be their own farm were being charged five shillings an acre <coughs> per year. The occupation licence was going to cost. <coughs> now what happened was our people got into debt. So in the period from 1917 to 1923, half of the Pariaka block was sold because the people were in debt. 5,000 of the 10,000 acres was sold because the people were in debt. But they weren't just being in debt. They weren't just in debt because of the occupation license. What was happening was this, was the public trustee, when he leased a piece of that land to a Pākehā, the cost of putting the road there, the cost of putting the fence around it, the cost of cutting down the bush, was all put onto the Māori owners. Even though the owners disagreed with it being leased. Good. You see, and that's what I say now, that those things are still binding on us today. Because the West Coast leases are still alienated from us. We have never been given them back. We've never been given them back. <coughs> but the conditions that government set up on the way that they would operate are still binding on us. Now our families got into so much debt over the West Coast leases that they didn't want anything to do with land. Because families were getting into so much debt, the old people were dying and leaving their mukapunas behind to pay for debts that the mukapunas and the old people didn't even ask for in the first place. So to us the land became, in that sense, it became a curse on our people. Become a curse on our people. So, many hundred of the people in here in Pariyaka would have nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with trying to get a piece of land for themselves. They wanted to stay here in Pariyaka and make use of the land that was around the par here in the way that our people always had. The story of Pariyaka, the sacking of Pariyaka, the rape of Pariyaka, the occupation of Parihaka, the burning and the starving of the people of Parihaka is a continuing hurt for the people and a blot on the nation's history. Parihaka stands as a shrine for freedom. But as we left Parihaka, the mountain stood up in its pristine mightiness and lifted its snowy cap to farewell us, like the white feather of Tefiti Teraukura, bidding us to go in peace and forgiveness. And that too was the message of Milton Ohio. Hohaia was recorded by former Radio New Zealand presenter Hardy Williams at Parihaka during the 21st celebrations of Nga Puna Waihanga, an organisation of Māori arts and crafts practitioners that in its heyday during the 1970s and 1980s really shook up the establishment and led change. 
An extended version of that recording is available after this broadcast at radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika. That cordial really reflects the meeting RA. If there was anyone who was going to see straight about misinformation about Parihako or Taranaki, it was the meeting Hohaya. Once, after I used an audio from a story recorded in the 1950s in a Teahika episode about Taranaki, he suggested I spend time with him in Parihaka, which was a way of saying, You got it wrong, Mariah. <laughs> <laughs> Now, that's always something I'm up for when someone invites you to their home. You do it. I didn't, though, eh? I never did spend time, well, I never did spend that one-on-one time with him there. And Palihaka just won't be the same, eh, without Temeringa. But if there's one thing about that community, it's the resilience. Moi mai e te rangatira a Palihaka. Moi mai. While Te Meringa Hōhaia lay in the western Taranaki, on the east coast in Te Araroa, Ngāti Purau country, lay Te Kapunga Matemoana Koro Jews. Always an advocate for education in Te Reo Māori, Jews was of the generation of Māori we don't experience as often as we used to. And we're about to hear the type of accents you very rarely hear on air anymore that really were a sign of the times in the early years of the New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation. Keith Bracey, a former television presenter in the 1970s and 1980s, is interviewing Koro Dews about the meaning of a Māori concept. As far as I know, Keith, Tūranga Waiwai uh, means uh, several things to many people. Uh, first and foremost, the uh, rights and obligations of uh, landowners in a, uh, a community. Uh, Social rights and obligations and responsibilities hinge around uh, land ownership, as it were, in a community. But there are other factors concerned with Tūranga Waiwai, and that is the uh, presence of either one or both of the parents uh, or other kin and relatives, the uh, burial of uh, members of the family in the uh, tribal or family graveyard, and uh, rights which stem from uh, belonging to a hapu, which, a hapu or sub-tribe, as it were, which uh, donated land for the Maori reserves in that area. This includes, of course, the local marae or community centre and uh, graveyards and other land reserves which might be uh, in the community or in adjacent areas. Uh, but by and large, anyway, uh, this still hinges around the question of land ownership, whether it's in the in family properties or in these Maori reserves. Well, thank you, thank you, Koro. I think you've uh, cleared that up for me anyway. Now, we get a situation where many of the younger people are leaving their home districts, moving into the cities or or the outskirts of the cities, they become urban dwellers. Uh, perhaps they relinquish their land rights in their home area, come to a city and take, la- take up land in a city, like a section. What happens to their Turanga Waiwai in that case? They still have Turanga Waiwai, uh, so long as uh, their parents are alive, other relatives remain in the community, or these reserves, these Maori reserves, are retained within a... a community. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about Tūranga Waiwai on its uh, broader sphere. 
Um, perhaps the point might be uh, clarified a little better when we refer to those urban dwellers who sell their uh, land interests, if not to members of the family, then to uh, uh, outsiders, including uh, Pagha. Um, their, their rights are not entirely relinquished, although they have no moral right, as it were, in the uh, decision-making that affects a, a particular community. But if these uh, uh, young people who sell these interests uh, have kin still alive, and these kin want, want them to maintain contact with them, then there are various ways of keeping this relationship warm, as it were, in the Maori mind. And that is by annual reunions, either in the city or uh, in the home community, or country cousins visiting the city, and so on. Have you yourself, Koro, any uh, land interests in your home area? In my own home district, I have no land interests. What interest will uh, come to me, perhaps, uh, will stem through my uh, father and mother, who are still alive in this particular community. Uh, ours is not an exceptional case. As a, as a matter of fact, I think it's much more general than uh, we realize. Both my father and mother do not come from uh, Horoera, which is my home community in the Ngati Pro area. Uh, my father comes from a community 30 or 40 miles away, and uh, that is the Whanauara Kairoa, around the Waipiro Bay, Ruatoria areas. My mother is from Te Whanaua Teopare uh, and Te Whanaua Tufokairiora in the adjacent area, uh, that's in Tararoa district. And both of them have resided in Horoera, which is Te Whanaua Hunara area, uh, and yet they now have uh, a foothold, as it were, which is Tūranga Waiwai. They have Tūranga Waiwai in this particular uh, community through residence. Now and we feel ourselves, the children feel, that uh, our Tūranga Waiwai is with them and with this community which acted as a nursery for us. But yes. in answer to your question, uh, we have no uh, land interests in that particular community, and yet our Tūranga Waiwai is there. Yes, and though you've moved away from it and own land in the city here, do you still have the right to make important or help in making important decisions in that area? The area? Uh, we just uh, advise when we are asked or mm. uh, help to sell raffle books for fundraising campaigns and so on, but so far as uh, uh, making decisions are concerned, uh, we have nothing whatever to do with it for the simple reason that our parents are still alive and they, they are with others of our relatives, our leaders of the community, in any case. But uh, those of us who feel confident to do so, uh, whenever we have family reunions or whenever we are in the home district at uh, community gatherings, uh, do have the right to get up and speak in the, uh, on the marae in the ceremonial gatherings. Mm. So our social rights are still maintained. One final thing, Koro. The Hun report uh, did touch on this question of Turanga Waiwai and the fragmentation of lands and, and dispersing of these small pieces of land. Uh, in, in fact, is this going on? Uh, 
Yes, um, not only the young people are selling their, uh, their small interests, but also older people. And a pleasing feature is, of course, that these people are selling their interests to members of the family uh, to increase economic holdings um, within the, uh, the community or the family group. But uh, it doesn't mean to say that they relinquish their Turanga Waiwai or their foothold in the community. Although, mind you, there is a trend now, I think, for younger people and some older people uh, to think in terms of burying their dead, not in the home communities, but in the uh, borough council or city, city council lawn cemeteries. Uh, one reason is to uh, overcome the expense of uh, taking dead back to their home communities, and secondly, um, to try to main, sort of make their own way, create their own destiny, as it were, with their own families in the, uh, uh, in the suburbs or the city, so that this Turanga Waiwai then can uh, hinge around uh, the, the people, uh, as it were, not just actually a foothold. Though, mind you, the visiting of kin the visiting of kin, one another, periodically, still keep their links of uh, kinship uh, warm or, or alive. Um, I think myself that, uh, as a principle, the selling of fragmented interests to members of the family is a jolly good idea, but I know in the case of uh, not only my immediate family but uh, other relatives that there is opposition from the older folk to the selling of these interests because they feel that with the selling of interests it could mean the severing of uh, uh, kinship ties, not only with them but also with the local community. And an ultimate breakdown perhaps in the community life itself. Well, the breakdown would be in the, uh, the close ties with the people in that community, but it doesn't uh, imply a breakdown in community life. Uh, because the community life will go on anyway, despite uh, immigration. But from my own observation, uh, not only in my own area, but other country districts throughout the East Coast bear plenty, the, the breakdown or the disadvantage of mass migration off the East Coast and these other areas is that there's a drawing off of potential leaders and um, perhaps men of destiny, men of energy from these areas. I'm thinking in terms, too, that uh, this is a problem that history has had to contend with over the last few centuries, uh, thinking in terms of the agrarian revolution in Great Britain and the industrial uh, revolution, where uh, the English, the Scots, and the, um, the Welsh had to migrate to the industrial centres to, to earn a living, to earn a crust. And by doing so, of course, this uh, depleted for quite some time the rural areas of their uh, energetic um, and potential farmers. And this is the case with Scotland even at the present time, where the, the Scotsman not only emigrates to, uh, to England in the south, but to Commonwealth countries and other countries uh, overseas. And this, in some way, uh, must be a decided advantage on the, uh, the Scots, the Lowlands and the Highlands. 
wherever they come from anyway. Keith Bracey in the mid-1960s interviewing Koro Jews, who died earlier this week. Now, we spoke about it earlier, but check out those accents. Yeah, they reflect the time <laughs> period, all right. That's slightly pompous, more English than English, <laughs> and very well-rounded te reo Māori. A couple of my kahununi nani spoke like that, and just the humility, eh, of koro Jews. And in fact, all of our people whose names get slaughtered by presenters, teachers, public servants, hello, it's the 21st century, but those oldies, eh, they carry on with the kaupapa and don't get distracted by it. And the patient way he describes Turanga Waiwai or terms that you can hear the Pākehā interviewer is trying to frame within a Pākehā framework. Which doesn't work, eh? Tikana Māori or Māori concepts don't necessarily translate or transfer over easily into Pākehā paradigm. I mean, our nation's history is riddled with examples of that. Which is what Julie Palmer Pingali says in her book Māori Art and Design, Weaving, Painting, Carving and Architecture that terms like design and art are foreign to Māori. Published by New Holland Press, I'm with Reuben Friend, Māori and Pacific Art Curator at City Gallery Wellington, talking about that and other things. That's next week. And why not head to our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika, for previous reviews of books. We're building up quite a few there now. And join our email list whānau at teahika at radionz.co.nz. We really do love hearing from you all. Anita, a Reuben friend with this week's Whakatauki. Te toto o te tangata he kai, te oranga o te tangata he whenua. Food is the source of man's bodily strength, but the land is the source of his spiritual well-being. Te whakatauki, um, to me, talks about um, sustenance in terms of our body, but also uh, our mental and kind of spiritual well-being. So monetary kind of wealth and and owning um, material kind of things. Um, it kind of comes second to, to taking care of your uh, mental and, and kind of spiritual well-being. Ko Reuben Friend tōku ingoa, ki te taho o tōku mātua ngō Ngāti Pākehā, ki te taho o tōku whaia, ko Ngāti Mania Poto te iwi, ko Ngāti Ngūtu te hapu, um, ko te rākau, ko um, te kēti, ōku marai. Um, ai, tupu ākeo i tāmaki makaurau i tēnei wā, e mahi ana au, ki te whare toi o Pōneke, ara ko City Gallery Wellington, uh, ko tōku tūrangi i reira, ko te curator mō ngā mahi toi Māori me ngā mahi toi o ngā tangata o te moana nui ākiwa. While we have spent this week's broadcast focusing on the contribution Temeringa, Hōhaia and Koro Jews have both made to Aotearoa, it's important to remember we all contribute somehow in some way in shaping te ao Māori and through that whether you're a professor, bringing up your whānau, fishing, hunting in the wop-wops, working on the factory floor, we're all making a contribution to te ao Māori. Ki ngā whānau a koro dues, he mihi mai o hatenei kia koutou katoa. Nō reira hoki mai hei tērā wiki whānau mā. Mai te whānau a te ahi kā kia tatou katoa. Mauri ora.